This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we hear Isaiah communicate the comprehensive and exhaustive nature of how God carries the burdens of all nations, not just the ones that bear his name. Yeah, this is, um, this is that part of Isaiah, I think we talked about it years ago in session two, like this is the really depressing part because it's, it's like God has this laundry list, this grocery list of all the nations and everybody, you know, it's like Santa Claus making his list and checking it twice and everybody's just been naughty. Like it's, it's so hard to, to read and to listen to. And yet, as I've, as I've continued to think about and, and just kind of pour over Isaiah in different ways, like this section becomes important to me because I feel like at least I, and I think many, many of us kind of go one of two directions when we read the prophets. We just kind of see them, on one hand, we may just see them in this general, abstract, God is angry, people are sinful, and it's just kind of everybody, like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, like that kind of an idea. On the other hand, some of us may hear a very intimate direct, uh, you are my people and you have sinned. And this is about me and you and our relationship. And both of those perspectives would be, would be incomplete. And Isaiah is one of the most perfect places to see that, as you said in the intro, comprehensive and exhaustive nature of God's perspective and God's care. Because it's both like, and we, and we don't, as we get into today's episode, we don't want to forget where we've been. We've just been through what, 12 chapters, Brent? 12 chapters of Isaiah? Yep. Pretty much focused squarely and solely on God's people, Israel and Judah, right? So far. Yeah. So we, I mean, we've been dealing with with one conversation directly about God. So this is not just God's mad at every, God has, has spent an awful lot of time talking to his people about their covenant relationship with him, his desires, what they are doing specifically in their situation. But but it's but sometimes we tend to think that God's only at work, like God only cares about his people. Today we would say things like his church. And everybody that's outside of his church or outside of his people, well, they're just the lost ones. Like they're just the they're just a bunch of sinners. So God just kind of sees them as like a sea of sinfulness. But what he really cares about is like his people and his church and and Isaiah, as well as so many other things in Torah and everywhere else, Isaiah's one of these things that show us. No, like God may not have the same covenant relationship with Babylon, but God cares about every last person in Babylon. Like I think of the story of Jonah. God cared about every last person. And by the way, the cattle and livestock too in Jonah. Like there there was a a deep, a universal care. There was a universal care. God cared about every last person, every last nation, every last individual. And so we're going to see that today in this episode, and and we're going to be tempted to forget about 12 chapters worth of very pointed conversation about God and his people. And yet today we get to see, but God sees everything else the exact same way as well. So we actually have a, a table that we've recreated, the original form of this table, to give credit where credit's due. I saw in my old this has been out of print for a while, but I've talked about it before. My archaeological study Bible, the NIV 
Archaeological Study Bible. And in my, on page, in my copy, in page 1078, 1078, I have a table and a graph that, uh, that it's titled The Nations in Prophecy. Um, and I just thought it was a really cool way. A, I, I'm a sucker for graphs when they're useful. Um, but it was a really cool way, or a table, should I say, to, to see just how the nations are addressed in prophecy. Because you kind of can lose yourself when you're in the pages of Amos or when you're studying Ezekiel. And you, yeah, okay, there's another nation. Yeah, okay, that's Damascus. Yeah, okay. And, and it's easy to kind of, but this was a great table to show. And it's not comprehensive and exhaustive. Like there's things that aren't even on this table. But if people see that in their show notes, Brent, there's going to be on your left hand side, you've got a bunch of you've got a bunch of nations. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to create it the same way that it is pictured as you're seeing it right now. So, uh, yeah, it probably won't translate as well to the format that we use for presentations, but it'll, it'll all be there. We'll see how it works, but you will see in some way, shape or form a bunch of nations like you've got you got Babylon, you got Philistia, you got Moab. Damascus, which is really, we, we would say Syria. Biblically, you, you could say at different times in history, maybe Assyria, um, Egypt, uh, Edom, Tyre, Ammon, um, Nineveh. Those are all nations that are listed here. And then any of the prophets that speak directly to those nations are listed across the table. So you can kind of, you can take something like Philistia, and you can see that Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them speak about Philistia. Um, Babylon is mentioned by Isaiah and Jeremiah, but not Amos and Ezekiel. But other other prophets come in and talk about Babylon, Habakkuk. Um, you've got you've got nations. I was actually interested when I see this in table form, Brent. The, the nation of Edom is actually like the one that makes it all the way across. Like everybody talks about the nation of Edom, like of all the nations. I, I thought that was interesting to me. That is interesting. Edom's addressed by Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Obadiah. Uh, so it gets a mention in the minor prophets as well. Obviously, Obadiah, it's directed at them, if you remember from session two. Mm-hmm. Um, Tyre, Ammon, Nineveh, obviously showing up with with Jonah, but also Nahum directed at Ninva. So anyway, I, I just thought this graph was, was super helpful. I want to look at, at, um, what we see in Isaiah. Isaiah covers an awful lot of those. The only nations that are on this table that I na- that Isaiah doesn't address in our section today. What's, what's the, what kind of chapters we cover in today, Brent, in our episode, we're looking at Isaiah 13 through 13 through 23. Yeah. Yeah. So in 13 through 23, Isaiah is going to talk about everything but Ammon and Nineveh. And I'm pretty sure that Isaiah is going to come back around towards the end and, and address at least, at least Ammon for sure. But he's going to talk about in this section today, Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Egypt, Edom, Tyre. There's going to be other cities or nations or people groups that get addressed in this section that we won't necessarily cover or read today. But this is a pretty comprehensive list. Like God isn't just upset because the people of Judah and Israel and his people have given into the lust of empire. God's upset because people are crying out everywhere. Like the world that we're building, 
I mean, and you would expect that from the pagan nations. That's what God's people would expect. But the world that we're supposed to be building as God's people, it's unsustainable. It's unsustainable. But now we're kind of getting into probably next week's episode. <laughs> well, and I did double check. So I'm going to put the archaeological study Bible in the show notes because sometimes you can find, you know, a used copy or whatever. Um, my wife actually found one at a thrift store um, like a year <laughs> wow. ago that we picked up. It's a large print edition. So it is a honker of a book, but that must've been somebody that took me up. That's in the town that I used to live in. So he must've took me up on recommendation and then was like, Nope, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this looks like, this looks like a pretty serious operation. It's got all the, you know, the little pull tabs and everything like sure. somebody was using this thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. And, but I do have the cultural background study Bible as well. And I checked in the table is not in that version. They do have a map of all these nations, uh, which I, have texted you in case you want to oh fun in case you want to look at it yourself but um yeah if you get the cultural background study bible you will not find this table but you will find a map which is also helpful in its own way so absolutely well let's um yeah i'm checking that out like right now as we speak this is like really unhelpful for anybody listening to the audio experience but <laughs> yeah check that out cool I, i'm liking that bible too i may have to get me a copy of that I've always thought it nice that I have one and you have the other, but I, I think I'm getting jealous. <laughs> I think your Bible might have something to say about that, but no, I digress. It has some, it has some good things, but you know, there's, there's value in having both if you can find a copy of the old one. <laughs> well, let's, let's start with, let's start with Babylon. We're not going to read everything, uh, obviously today, but let's start with Babylon. Babylon's going to be covered from chapters 13 and 14. Um, well, let's just give us, give us the first... Like where does this where does this prophecy against Babylon start? Give us like thirteen, uh, you know. Give us one through. Yeah, I don't know one through. I'll tell you where to. I'll tell you when to stop. I'm really yeah, good I was at that. Say it. How far are we going to get? Really, <laughs> you can tell me whatever number you want. <laughs> but I have a feeling it's going to be verse three at the latest. <laughs> a prophecy against a Babylon that Isaiah son of Amos saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them. Beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I've commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath. Those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kings like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. Okay, so here, uh, there's my, there's, that's, that's it where I was wrong. I'm going to jump in. So the, <laughs> the way, the tone, and this is coming off some comments that we discussed earlier today, Brent, that now are stuck in my brain. Who, as we read this, who, whose voice are we hearing? Who's the one speaking? Who's pronouncing? Who is the I? Uh, this should be Isaiah at this point. Well, definitely, practically, it's Isaiah. I'm trying to figure out if it's the voice of Isaiah himself or the voice of the Lord. What did the opening verse say? Just a prophecy? A prophecy, yeah. I have commanded my holy A prophecy that Isaiah saw. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it just feels like I have commanded my holy ones sure feels like the voice of who? Uh, yeah, I mean, it does. Yeah. That f- Although they're not, they're not putting in quotation marks. And I think I agree with that interpretation because it's not, there hasn't yet been a, the Lord says, or the Lord Almighty says, and we'll see those later. Yeah. I've seen one of the sources I've been using for our study. Uh, I can already tell the show notes they are going to be long. Um, is we've, we've talked about Robert Alter's translation of the Tanakh. And I've noticed throughout the study of Isaiah, um, uh, in Alter's perspective, Isaiah loves to, he seems to go 
in and out of Micah does the same thing. I did another teaching on Micah recently and using Alter's material seems to go in and out of, and I don't know if it's part of this pathos we talked about episodes ago, but goes in and out of the voice. Um, and so Alter will make notes because he's like, I'm, I'm not sure this belongs in quotations, but Isaiah is definitely speaking on the Lord's behalf using his, using his first person voice. And so it makes it tricky for them to know how to use quotations, but um, but this definitely feels like at least, even if it's Isaiah saying the, who is the one behind the action? Who's the one moving the, the pieces of the cosmos? Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, then it would be the Lord Almighty. <laughs> then it's definitely the Lord. So we can at least make it clear, but you were telling me about a resource you were looking at. Let's add another resource to the show notes. Brent, what were you, what were you studying recently? Uh, yeah, I have a friend who gave me a copy of Cross Vision by Gregory Boyd, and I've been reading that, um, pretty embarrassingly slowly, really. Um, but the, the most recent chapter I read, um, the whole idea of the book is if you, if you look at, um, Jesus and specifically Jesus on the cross and consider that the most perfect representation of who God is and what he's all about, um, the perfect love, the perfect sacrifice, all this stuff. If you look at that and say, okay, that is our cleanest, purest picture of God, then how do we explain all of this other stuff that we see, um, especially in Tanakh? So the idea is like, okay, you're going to have the perspective in this case of Isaiah. And every once in a while, you're going to see these elements of the true God, like breaking through. So in this moment, the Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. Is that actually what God is doing, or is that Isaiah's perspective on what is happening? And it gets a little tricky, um, but we'll see, you know, in some later places, um, later in, I think it's in 14, where um, it seems like God is like doing all of these things to the Babylonians. But then there's this, there's this one part in, it's in 14... Uh, verse 18. Yeah. 14. Well, yeah, it's, it's actually down in 20 where it says it. Um, but it's talking about, um, it's talking about the King, all the Kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out of your tomb, like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain with those pierced by the sword. Those who descend to the stones of the pit sounds like potentially God doing all this at this point. But then it says like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. So was it actually God doing it or was it, was it the King of Babylon and whether, whether he's making mistakes or whether he's being intentionally abusive and malicious to his people? I don't know, but it's like, okay, so it seems like even though we said that God is doing all of this stuff and then right after that, it goes back to, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord almighty I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors. It's like, okay, well, but then why did it say that the king of Babylon is destroying his own land and killing his own people? Right. So that's, we have to try to untangle all of that. Right. And I think, I think think for those of us who read the Bible, we have that tension where it's like, didn't it just say that, but now it's saying this. And it's like, you want to, I think our, our instinct, our natural bent is to trust Isaiah as the prophet of the Lord, but like, you know, 
Yeah. He's a human just like the rest of us. So it's like, we know that we make mistakes. So maybe he's making a mistake. Maybe he's seeing the wrong perspective or maybe he's making assumptions about what God is doing without having actually heard it as clearly as we would like it to be. And yeah, the other aspect of the book is like, even though, even though God knows what's going on, like God is still willing to use Isaiah and, and some of those things will break through. And then, you know, God's saying like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to partner with these people anyway. I'm going to be a part of what they're doing. And eventually we're going to get to a fuller, better understanding of who I am and what I'm doing. But I'm going to, I'm going to continue to work with them, even though the perspective on what I'm doing in the world isn't perfect at this point. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's some things that jump off that conversation that are really helpful for me. Um, one of them would be, we've talked about before, uh, in our earlier material about the Jewish perspective of whatever you want to call it, double point truth of paradox, um, their, their ability, like we kind of, at some point in our, I think it was like session four, give or take, like we somewhat poked fun at how Western thought has to do an either, or is it, is it God pulling the strings? Is it determinism or is it free will in our choices and the biblical world of Judaism saying, uh, obviously both. Um, and they maintain not an either, or is it this, or is it that, but a both. And like, there is a direct relationship between, in this case, as you see in Isaiah 14, the, the actions of the King of Babylon, which is what has gotten God's attention and where the guilt lies very squarely and very directly, it keeps you from being able to say like, well, God's just doing what God's going to do from his heavenly throne room. And it really doesn't matter. No, this, this was directly in direct relationship to the imperial injustice, to the immorality of your, the kingdom you're building, the way that you are leading. Like this is absolutely about your choices. And yet this isn't God sitting back and just kind of watching it unfold either. God is absolutely actively involved. It's this both and it's caused him to rise up. Isaiah 13, you know, you know, rise up. There's a banner being raised. God is about to move. So God is moving. And yet there's a direct relationship between the movement of God and the actions and, and behaviors of, of the people that are like, it, it's this marriage. It's what Reed talked about a few episodes ago. It's that, it's that disgruntled parent. It's that frustrated, scorned husband. It's, it's, there's, there's a relationship that you could never necessarily untangle and pull apart. It, it's all, it's like two, it's, it's those two colors of Play-Doh that you've smashed together. You're never going to, you're never going to get those two colors back apart again. Um, and, and it's that relationship at play there. I would be interested, um, just because language matters and to circle back around like when Greg, when, when Boyd talks about, I'm familiar enough with Boyd's work. I would assume I haven't read that, that book in particular. Um, I would assume that Boyd would be very careful about his language when it comes to the perspective of the prophet versus whether or not the prophet is making mistakes as he pins what I'm sure Boyd would affirm would be Inspired yeah, that, scripture. that was my word. I don't believe that Boyd said that he was making a mistake. Yeah, and I didn't want to throw you under the bus, but that will, uh, that, that, that language will certainly matter. Like I go back to, that's what I found so helpful about the end of session two, when we talked about the prophetic table and we talked about all the different perspectives, because it maintains what Boyd's talking about. Like every one of these prophets and every one of these authors has a, they're not God, they're inspired, but they still have, they can't see things through 
through God's perspective, it's impossible. They're still a human author. And so they have their limited understanding, inspired, infallible, without mistakes perspective, but it's still their perspective. And that's why you have to have, well, what about the perspective from a little bit later in history? What about the perspective on the other side of the table? What about all those perspectives matter? And then, and, and then we don't have to wrestle with whether or not the author made a mistake, but simply, and, and what I love about Boyd is he's so Christocentric. So now I get to hear the voice of Jesus who comes in and, and literally says, this part of the prophet I love, and then kind of like rearranges things because he's like, this is the perspective we need right now, and I'm Jesus, and I'm the one that gets to make that decision. And that's what I find so helpful about our relationship to the prophets. Um, but yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Yeah, if anything, my critique on this book would be um, that it makes the entire point of what Jesus is doing about the cross and discounts uh, the rest of what he did in his life, which I think we've spoken about quite a bit in session three. We have. Um, but I mean, that is that is the point of this book necessarily. So, And, and that is definitely Boyd's, I mean, that is his theology. We've even addressed that as well. And, and part of where um, I would probably diverge from his perspective, but I mean, he's being true to um, the theology that he brings to the table, which I find to be incredibly helpful, even in, even in ways that I diverge from it. But but very helpful. And this book, Cross Vision, is um, it's already quite thorough, so much more thorough than what I have relayed in in these moments on the podcast. Um, but it's actually it's a it's a two hundred fifty page condensed version of a much larger work um, that he did called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Yes, which is fifteen hundred pages, which he's constantly referencing. He's like, okay, here's this and this and this, and if you want to know more about this or if you want some more examples, then you can go reference the other thing. So if you really want to dig into his perspective on this, that's the, the tome. fiction of the warrior God, 1500 pages. <laughs> that's the tome right there. That is the staple work. Um, love it. Well, let's just bounce through and see some of these other, uh, Felicia has a short little passage, but it has a passage. Why? Because what's happening in Felicia matters to God. Give us, um, chapter 14, verse 29 through 32, Brent. Well, I'll start in 28. Okay, because it says this this prophecy came in the year King Ahaz died, which could potentially be important. Uh, okay, a context for this. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of the snake will spring up a viper; its fruit will be a darting, venomous serpent. The poorest of the poor will find pasture, and the needy will lie down in safety. But your root I will destroy by famine; it will slay your survivors. Wail, you gate! Howl, you city, melt away, all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke comes from the north, and there is not a straggler in its ranks. What answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation? The Lord has established Zion, and in her his afflicted people will find refuge. All right, so God cares about Philistia, which is, I mean, I think, I think we hear these biblical nations and we're like, yeah, we get it. But, but Babylon and Philistia are wildly different settings, not just geographically, Babylon, and, and at this point in history, it all depends on when you think Isaiah is being written, like Babylon's not the Babylon that we're going to know a little bit later in the story, but Babylon is still a pretty a, a pretty significant, substantial empire. Yes, Brent? Yeah? I mean, in this particular time, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And, and Philistia uh, is not a big place. So Philistia would be modern day Gaza, 
So the Gaza Strip today is basically in a lot of ways pretty. I mean, that's the that was the same land. That's the land of the Philistines. The the cities that are around Gaza and in Gaza are the same Ashdod and Ekron. And um, those are those are the cities of Philistia from from the biblical time. So, I mean, when you think of the size and the scope of Babylon, you're like, well, of course, God would say something about Babylon. But Philistia, yes, he cares about the poor in Philistia, too. He cares about that group of people. as So it's not just these big movers and shakers. It's the big nations. It's the small nations. It's, it's, why, it, it's why we said comprehensive and exhaustive. There's no corner of the, of the world, of the earth, of the arets, um, as Isaiah loves to use that word. Um, there, there's no corner of the earth that God's care, his eye, uh, his love for shalom and justice doesn't go. Let's see here. What about um, what about Moab? Let's pick something out of uh, Moab, or not Moab, as if that's a book in the Bible. Uh, Isaiah 15 or 16. Let's pick something from there. I, just, I always feel like starting at the beginning. It always feels like the best place to start. How about we start at 15 <laughs> verse 1 and see what gets set. Uh, prophecy against Moab. Ar in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Kir in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Devon goes up to its temple, to its high places to weep. Moab wails over Nevo and Medava. Every head is shaved and every beard cut off. In the streets, they wear sackcloth. On the roofs and in the public squares, they all wail, prostrate with weeping. Heshbon and Eli... Eli... Whatever. Eli... Hold on, let me find it. What verse are we in? (laughs) Verse 4. Verse four, I'm probably going to regret that I'm trying to help you out here. Um, verse four, where? Oh, yeah, Eliela, Eliela, Eli, it's going to be like Eliezer, Eliela, Eliela. <laughs> I would love to see it in the Hebrew. That's, then that's I could kind really, of where I got. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, their voices are heard all the way to Yahaz. Therefore. The armed men of Moab cry out, and their hearts are faint. My heart cries out over Moab. Her fugitives flee as far as Zoar, as far as Eglath Shelishaya. I was going to stop you, and I'm like, I'm going to let him read that. I'm going to let him read that. So yeah, yeah let me follow on my sword here. There you go. And then, and then, so I, I see a passage in the next chapter, still talking about Moab, still the same discourse. Um. We have we have heard of Moab's pride, her her overwhelming pride and conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. Therefore, the Moabites wail and they wail together for Moab, lament and grieve for the men of Kir Hereset, the fields of Heshbon, wither the va, the vines of Sivma, also the rulers of the nations have trampled down the choicest vine. And there's that same dance again, Brent, of. Their behavior, their choices, what they're doing, their pride, their conceit versus what God is doing and what's happening around them because God sees um, and God cares. And it's easy to hear all this and get wound up in the punishment. I think we're going to hear in maybe next week's episode, this isn't so much about God tit for tat, 
paying people back for, like Reed said, whack, I can't believe I'm quoting Reed so much today. The the whole whack a mole, the sin whack a mole that we often this is this is about a world that we've built that is unsustainable because of what it does to people on the bottom of that world. It's not built for shalom. It's built on the backs of people that get oppressed and marginalized and taken advantage of. This is what makes the whole thing unsustainable. This is why it comes crashing down. And it doesn't just come crashing down. It comes crashing down because God is actively trying to dismantle those things that cause so much destructive um, injustice in the world. Oh, what did we have next? We had Damascus. 17, chapter 17, 1 through 3, Brent. A prophecy against Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aroer. <laughs> this is such a fun episode today. This is great, yeah. Will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, the royal power from Damascus, the remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. That one in quotation marks, notably. Uh-huh. Because you have that, declares the Lord there Almighty There you go. Language. Yep, that, that'll always help the translators know what to do. I say that, and I immediately think of instances where that doesn't help them, but nevertheless. Yeah, the tricky thing about that is knowing where to begin the quotation marks at some points. I think in this case, maybe it's not too complicated, but it's like, oh, declares the Lord Almighty. So you know that up to that point... It was God speaking, but then where where did that begin? And sometimes that's the tricky thing. So there's always a challenge in the translation. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, the next the next one that we have is Egypt. Egypt ends up being so. You think Egypt when you think Egypt, biblical Egypt, Brent? Do you think like oh yeah, big deal, or just like oh tiny little Philistia? Like who cares? I mean, I think big deal. Yeah, it's like one of those big superpowers. Like we've talked often about the. Whether it's the Hittites or the or the Greeks or what you you know you've got something coming from the west you've got Babylon or Assyria in the in the north and the east and then you've got kind of Egypt in the south all coming through this crossroads of the earth so this is like one of those sort so now we're talking about one of those big names again those big movers and shakers those it's not really Philistia. I mean, Moab can be kind of a larger geographical deal, but I don't know if when I think of Moab, I think of like Egypt and Babylon, but here's, here's another one of those. Give us the first, um, I don't know, give us the first four verses of uh, 19, chapter 19. A prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. All right. Uh, speaking of brother against brother, um, let's uh, let's jump over to Edom. Let's go to chapter 21. Uh, verses 11 through 12. A prophecy against Dumas. Someone calls to me from Seir, Watchman, what is left of the night? Watchman, what is left of the night? The watchman replies, Morning is coming, but also the night. If you would ask, then ask, and come back yet again. Love it. Or I don't love it, but you get the idea. <laughs> Very um, confusing, actually. <laughs> I think, I was like, wait a second. 
that I just those little those little quips that I just say without even thinking. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, no, I don't. I don't love that at all. Um, we got one more for Isaiah, according to our table. Anyway, we've got Tyre. It's one of my favorite conversations in the biblical prophets is Tyre and how it always becomes our backstory for Satan character. But let's talk about Tyre. Uh, I actually like the opening verses of this one too. Let's do let's do a Tyre verse. Uh, Chapter 23. Yeah, we're skipping to 23, but there's there's a prophecy about Jerusalem in 22 that we're oh, just like... Oh, thanks for pulling that out. in the middle of out. all this stuff. Ah, uh, Brent Billings catching the... Yeah, let's do it. Let's do... Yeah, let's let's, uh, let's just start reading chapter 22. We might read the whole thing. I'll tell you when to stop because, yes, let's, let's see the fact that God's people, Jerusalem, shows up in the midst of all of these prophecies because God cares. Like... God sees it all. It's it's a universal care. It's a universal, it is a comprehensive, exhaustive. God doesn't turn it off. God doesn't care more. He doesn't have favorites. God cares about every wealthy person stewarding their wealth in every nation. He cares about every poor person being taken advantage of. He cares about every, every situation. God sees it all, including... The outsiders, including the insiders. So let's not skip it. I love that you caught that. Uh, chapter 22, go for it. Well, and I'm I'm keying off of the uh, subtitle that says a prophecy about Jerusalem, but the first verse says a prophecy against the Valley of Vision. So is that some kind of euphemism for Jerusalem or what? Now, you've caught me, <laughs> you've caught me unawares without my Hebrew lexicon line nearby me, but my understanding is the word Jerusalem Yerus Salam, uh, Shalom, Shalom is the the word Jerusalem literally means Valley of Vision. Um, oh, I would have to uh, I have to check and see what Hebrew word is used in verse one when it says the. I wonder if it said ha. I wonder if it's Yerus. Well, the NET footnote just says it's unclear why it's why it would be referred to as that. So I don't know. All right, hold on. The, wait a minute. The NET says it's unclear why it would be. Yeah. Are you serious? It says the following message pertains to Jerusalem. The significance of referring to the city as the Valley of Vision is uncertain. Perhaps the Hinnom Valley is in view, but why it is associated with prophetic revelatory quote unquote vision is not entirely clear. Maybe the Hinnom Valley is called this because the discretion that will take place there is the focal point of this prophetic message. Well, if this, if this... Episode goes long today, everybody. It's going to be Brent Billings' fault. <laughs> Isaiah 22. That is so weird, NET. Sometimes it takes the weirdest takes. I know. Well, it and it references verse 5. It says, uh, verse 5 says, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision, a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Yeah, so the Hebrew word there is not, it, it's, the, it's the word I would be more familiar with for... For valley, it would be gaye, gaye, um, like we say ge, um, gehenom, get so the ge, gaye, that's the Hebrew word for valley. So I don't know what I don't know, but I've been taught that a million times that Yerus Shalem, Jerusalem, um, meant valley of vision. I don't know if there's a second word for valley or i don't know if it's like being pulled over from some other semitic language that would be a great question for l where is l when we need her we just need a phone phone a friend option <laughs> in the Bayma podcast 
let's see here. Let me go back out. Let me see if I can find anything while we sit here. I'm just in Blue Letter Bible, ladies and gentlemen. You can do this. You can do this. Uh, can you find Jerusalem mentioned anywhere in the biblical text there, Brent? Uh, it's in verse 10. Thank you. Let's see. Does it break it down at all? A dual allusion to the two main hills. Hmm. Yeah, and shalom. So it definitely does the shalom off of Salem. And it's saying this is going to be Yereh, to teach, to shoot. That's where the word Torah comes from. Mm, interesting. I wonder why. I wonder where the idea of, so yes, Blue Letter Bible, Strong's Entry, says teaching of peace. So I don't know where they get valley, but I have been taught that before. None of this is in our notes, everybody. This is all spontaneous, inspired by Brent Billings. Possession <laughs> of peace. Possession of peace, foundation of peace. It's giving all the different options that you can show all. Of course, who wouldn't want to see all? I'm seeing nothing for vision. What could it be? Foundation? Foundation of peace? This meaning is dubious, possession of peace, foundation of peace. Fantastic. What fun. Well, I've been taught that before, whether it's coming from this passage or whether there's an etymological, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll get the, I'll get the Facebook message from Elle. She'll tell me all about it. But there you go. Fantastic. There I was teaching something I'd never necessarily even dug deep into. Jacenius says... Interpreters differ as to the etym etym etymology and orthography. Orthography. Oh, here, I'll get another message from Reed telling me how to speak English correctly. As to the first <laughs> of its compounded parts, and lately consider that Yeru stands for possession, possession of peace. Yeah, because there is going to be, yeah, they could be taking that from the to seize and possess. Elle's taught me all about that word. I'm learning things from Elle Grover Fricks. Uh, yeah, that makes sense too. I don't know about vision. I don't know. Jacinius isn't saying anything about vision either. Hmm. Valley of vision. Interesting. Okay. Well, back to our regularly scheduled broadcasting. <laughs> Keep on reading, Brent. Uh, it's not like we have a ton of notes. So, you know. Okay, a prophecy against the Valley of Vision. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs, you town so full of commotion, you city of tumult and revelry? Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They have been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. What a What a strange, like combination of things happening like yeah absolutely they were they fled but they were captured but it wasn't with the bow or the like it's just they were caught but they like they fled but they were caught i don't know uh they, they fled while the enemy was still far away and yet still caught like right okay crazy yep. uh therefore i said turn away from me let me weep bitterly do not try to console me over the destruction of my people the Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision, a day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Elam takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kir uncovers the shield. 
your choicest valleys are full of chariots, and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The Lord stripped away the defenses of Judah, and you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. Which, I mean, that that uh, fits with what we've learned previously about city gates and city walls and 100%. casement housing and all that stuff. Fits, if it's the history, if it's the context, it's also going to fit... Uh, I- I don't know what I mean. Like, it's also going to fit their future. Like, this is the same things that are going to happen for centuries to come. Like, I, I, I'm still fascinated by what you pointed out, like the the whole tone and tenor of this prophecy. Like, you left before the sword even got to you. Like, all these other prophecies, it's like the destruction, the terror, the... And, and you guys, you didn't even give me a chance. Like, I feel like that's the prophecy is, if you would have trusted in me, like, to go back to the beginning of Isaiah, to think of what Isaiah said to Amos, like, if you would have trusted in me... If you would have just stayed, trusted the story, I would have delivered you, but you didn't even give me a chance. You were gone before this even got started. And so the prophecy is not necessarily just heaping on the cowardice, but just the fact that there was no faith, there was no trust. And so the Lord is left to like weep and wail because I didn't even get a chance to show up. How about we jump ahead and, and do the the tire one just to keep the 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 tone and the what am I not the tone but the keep it all balanced a balanced table balanced table everybody's here a prophecy against Tyre wail you ships of Tarshish for Tyre is destroyed and left without house or harbor from the land of Cyprus word has come to them be silent you people of the island and you merchants of Sidon whom the seafarers have enriched on the great waters came the grain of the Shehor. The harvest of the Nile was the revenue of Tyre, and she became the marketplace of the nations. Be ashamed, Sidon, and you fortress of the sea, for the sea has spoken. I have neither been in labor nor given birth. I have neither reared sons nor brought up daughters. When word comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report from Tyre. That's good enough for me. I think we get the idea. Um, And I don't mean that in like a trivial, like, swipe of the hand kind of a way. Like, we... We have seen God address nation after nation. I'm trying to think, Brent, if they were like missing, like on a map. If we talked about Ammon, not not in Isaiah, but He will talk about Moab, Philistia, Judah, Israel. We've talked about uh, Babylon, Egypt. Uh, Cush was in there. We didn't necessarily talk about Cush. Cush was in there. Scholars debate exactly who and exactly where Cush is, but it's Egypt-ish. Um, we've talked about Egyptish, uh, yeah. yes, <laughs> yeah. Some say north and some say south, so it all depends on who you're looking at, trying to figure out who Cush is. Um, but if you're thinking Egypt, you're thinking the right direction. Like God has taken a look at the whole map and said, "I see it all, and I care about it all." And I think one of the takeaways for me, it's like so hard to read this portion of Isaiah. Just when we read it as a as as the Bible, as the book in front of us, and we're trying to just exegete it. And and one of the things about this section for me that I can think about in my own world, the truth hasn't changed. God cares about all of it. Like God cares about Christians that bear his name. He cares about the church. He also cares about just as much. He cares literally just as much about everybody who doesn't bear his name, who is not a part of his church. He cares about what's happening in America. He cares about what's happening in Mexico. He cares about what's happening in the socialist 
setting of Venezuela. He cares what's happening in Ukraine right now. He cares about what's happening in Israel, and he cares about what's happening in Gaza. Um, as we record this episode, a lot is happening in all those places. He cares. He cares about every – and nobody is left out. And this idea that there's like one group of people where like God cares about the immorality and the injustice and the destruction and the pride wherever it shows up, no matter where it shows up. God cares about it, and God has something to say about it. Now, what God does is completely up to him. That's what makes him who he is. But but we can see in this passage the fact that nothing goes unnoticed, and that everything and everybody matters. It's under the purview, the purview of the creator who cares about his creation. Every last corner, every last city, every last nation, it matters. It matters. And and so in the midst of all those things, and even our own world, we always find ourselves trying to figure out like, well, which side, which side do we need to be on? Like which side? And we learn from this passage, shalom, like God, we need to be on the side of shalom and peace. And wherever that's happening, that, that ought to be celebrated. And when it's not taking place, God grieves. And if we're the ones behind it, we ought to hear the warning and heed what we've learned from history about what that what that leads to. It, it is at the very best unsustainable. It is at the very worst uh, the the the. Um, I hate to use the word target. It is the, uh, it, it, what's a better word for me, Brent? It is God, God is narrowing his, he is, his eyes are beginning to, to, to narrow. His he is focus. Maybe? He is start, the focus of the divine is starting to be drawn. Um, so at the best, it's unsustainable. At the best, this isn't going to live. It's not going to be able to survive because that's not how the world operates. At the worst, we have gotten the attention of God in a very, very bad way. So these are the, these are the things that we can learn, and, and it's not. And there's no corner, there's no flag, there's no nation, there's no there's no people group, there's no church. There's there's where like you get it, you get a free pass. Nobody gets a free pass. Um, God cares about it all. God's bringing shalom to the whole earth, and that's what He's up to. And we see that in these crazy passages of condemnation today. Okay, well, <laughs> good enough. Plenty of uh, yeah, I think. Um... I would encourage people to go back and read, you know, we didn't cover every verse of every passage here. Sure didn't. You know, there's probably some interesting stuff in there that we probably would have loved to highlight if we had, if we went through everything with a fine tooth comb, where there's probably some stuff in there that it's like, oh, I wish we would have mentioned that. But that's what, that's the whole reason that we do this together. This is why we get in discussion groups. This is why we get a friend and we, we dig into the text together. So I'd encourage everyone to do that. Amen and amen. All right. If you want to know anything else, you can go to bearmontdeception.com. We'll have the presentation with some sort of a table. I think my hunch is I'm probably going to make uh, one slide per nation that is addressed. So you'll you'll see all those Isaiah passages that we were using, but you'll also see where those nations have been addressed in other prophets. It's perfect. Well, uh, that'll do it for this episode then. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.